0: i say right at the outset in my view our church um it acts quite consistently with both those passages properly understood um but i think a little bit of work is required to get to what those passages are really trying to say to us so just in case anyone's worried about that um i'm quite comfortable that our church um responds appropriately to those two passages and um There we go. Uh, The other thing I'd say is that my first draft of this sermon would have gone for an hour and I've shortened it to my usual 25 minutes. Uh, So there's a number of things I would have liked to have said on this topic which I haven't. Uh, So if you think that something I say I haven't explained properly or if you'd like to ask me a question about perhaps something I didn't address I'm very happy to um, tell you what I think after the service or you know privately in discussion or whatever like that. Why don't we pray that God would help us as we think about today's topic. Heavenly Father, we do pray you give us clear minds and open hearts to receive and understand and apply your word to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, reflecting on my life, I think I could say that some of my best Christian experiences have been what I would call men, women and ministry experiences. Times when I've served God as part of a team which has included men and women. I think very fondly back to our beach mission days. And I used to go on the Tawoon Bay beach mission team. And there's a picture behind me, Uh, myself and a friend ran the teenage section that particular year. Uh, You can see there are, most of us were in our early 20s at the time. Um, There were men and women. Uh, We really enjoyed each other's company. We served, I think, uh, well together. And I think God did some good stuff uh, through that team. Very positive experience. I think of my first church placement after finishing Moore College. And I run, ran, ran a young adults group with, with Shireen uh, and I ran some youth ministry with um, three other ladies, Linda, Kat, and Lauren. I, I loved working with all of those, um, those women and I think we enjoyed ourselves and perhaps humbly did some good ministry under God. And I'm on a, a staff team uh, today which has men and women and I really enjoy and appreciate working with them as well. Uh, Sadly, however, the area of, let's call it, men, women and ministry or gender and ministry uh, is a topic today which can cause some uh, controversy. There are a range of views on gender and ministry around and some hold that when it comes to what ministries a man or a woman should engage in and how a man or a woman should engage in those ministries, some hold that there's absolutely no difference between men and women, some hold that there are some differences between men and women. Now, uh, as we look at the Bible uh, and and consider um, what we think it's saying, uh, Christians uh, often find themselves today at odds with culture on some of these issues, uh, but there's nothing particularly new there. I think we're getting increasingly used to being at odds with our culture. But the challenging thing today is that within evangelical Bible-believing circles, there actually is quite a range of opinions on this topic, uh, all held by people who are trying to apply the Scriptures to life. So I think what that does tell us is that, um, you know, we need to be uh, open to being accepting of others who may have genuinely and sincerely held positions which slightly differ to ours. Uh, And so I'm quite comfortable that people are um, trying to understand the Scriptures and come to a slightly different conclusion to me. um, You know, I'm I'm quite accepting of that. So I think we all need to have that sort of attitude, particularly on this topic. Uh, Sometimes I, I wonder whether perhaps one or two people might be a bit tense about today's topic. Um, I'm going to do my best to try and explain it but at the end of the day, we all sit under scripture and have to try and understand and apply scripture as best we can. Now, as you know, we're continuing our series on roles and relationships and today's topic is gender and ministry. Hopefully, you've picked up an outline on the way in. Also, be helpful if you had a Bible with you or your device open uh, to your Bible. Uh, I'm going to make a couple of preliminary points before I start to really look at the topic in hand. My first preliminary point, relates to female liberation, because I want to highlight that in fact, um, Christianity has been central in in female liberation over the last 2000 years. Secondly, I want to make a preliminary point about biblical interpretation. The reason for that is because Christians sometimes uh, interpret and apply uh, passages in this area slightly differently. And I want to explain why that might be the case and how perhaps we could understand why people might hold different views, but try and do it as best we can ourselves. And then, thirdly, get on to the topic of men, women and ministry. So, that's where we're going. Okay, First, my first preliminary point, female liberation. Christianity is sometimes perceived as being anti-female and is sometimes perceived as being anti-women's liberation. But it can be argued that Christianity was, in fact, the first women's liberation movement. There's a prominent contemporary Christian writer and speaker today by the name of Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin, some of you may have heard her, she wrote a very good book called Confronting Christianity a few years ago, which in my humble opinion is the best book on Christian apologetics I've read in the last 10 years and I've read some of her other stuff, uh, very good writer and had a lot of good stuff to say. And she says Christianity isn't against women, is in fact the greatest movement of women in all of history. She also says that Christianity was actually the reason people started to think that women were equal to men. Now, why does she say that? Well, because the fact of the matter is that in the first century world of the Roman Empire and in probably most cultures throughout most of history, men and women weren't seen as equal. Uh, some cultures were very anti-women and that seems to have been true of the Roman Empire which is the world of, uh, I guess, New Testament times. One American professor of classics by the name of Kyle Harper has written as follows. He notes that the complete Violent exploitation of women without any claim to civic protection was simply, as a problem in its own right, invisible. Those things were taken for granted in the first century world. I've read that Roman men in the first century considered they had the right to the bodies of lower status women, children and slaves. Uh, The idea of consent, which we hold so strongly to today, didn't really exist in that world. Greek philosopher Aristotle regarded females as imperfect males. Jewish historian Josephus considered women inferior to the man in every way and you may know that in the first century a common practice was to leave out unwanted children to die, you just leave them on the roadside or at the tip and if they died, they died. If someone else wanted them, good luck to them and women, with a little baby girls, were, were left out to die or would be exposed far more frequently than baby boys because boys were considered far more valuable than baby girls in that first century culture. Now, Christianity then comes along in this world and raises the status of women. Uh, Christianity promotes the view that women are equal to men, which was countercultural. Uh, Christianity promoted the idea that husbands should be faithful to their wives, which was fairly countercultural, and Christianity promoted the idea that there should be mutu- mutual consent in marriage, which would have been pretty countercultural. And uh, this made Christianity very appealing and attractive to children, slaves, and women. There was a second century philosopher by the name of Celsus who was a big critic of Christianity, and he rather disparagingly noted that uh, Christianity was only able to convince the foolish, dishonourable and stupid, only slaves, women and little children. So I guess he's typical of the attitude of the day outside Christian circles, but he recognises that actually Christianity was incredibly appealing to slaves, to women and to children because of the, the status, the elevated status of equality that it gave them. There's a very famous uh, sociologist uh, of the ancient world by the name of Rodney Stark and in one interview, as he reflects on Christianity in that time, he says he wonders why every woman who heard about Christianity didn't become a Christian. So much better were they, I guess, conceived of than in the surrounding culture. Now, this pro-female liberation and equality idea is not just limited to the ancient world, and many of you will know there have been various waves of feminism over the last uh, 150 or so years. And in the first wave of feminism in the late 19th century and early 20th century, Christians were prominent in the feminist movement. So uh, the names of two 19th century abolitionists and women's right activists were uh, Sojourner Truth and Lucretia Mott. And they believed that women were equal to men, not despite their Christian faith, but because of their Christian faith. That um, uh, lady up there is is Sojourner Truth, who was one of the ladies I just referred to there. And I've also read that in the United States, women gain the right to vote and inherit land, due in a large part to Christian activism. And I think even today, uh, there will be great commonality between many of the beliefs of the women's liberation movement and Christianity. But of course, I could think of a few areas of of difference uh, as well. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that throughout history, uh, Christianity is and has been perceived most of the time to be very pro-male and to be pro-female, to be pro-men and women. So I wanted to put that point in there. Second preliminary point I wanted to make is about biblical interpretation because often Christians uh, reason their way from the Bible to slightly different views on our gender and uh, ministry topics and other ones as well. Now, uh, for Christians, we want to have the Bible as our ultimate source of authority. and What we've got to try and do is to understand it as best we can and interpret it as best we can. And I think the range of views that people might have in terms of understanding the Bible can be greatly narrowed uh, if we have good principles of interpretation. Now, I don't have time to talk about that properly this morning, but just a few points. Uh, It's always dangerous to look at a verse out of context, always so good to look at a verse of scripture within the context of the passage, within the context of the book and within the context of the entire Bible. Take it out of context, you can get it wrong. I think um, one of the uh, verses which was read in one of our readings just then says, women will be saved through childbearing. Now, if you take that out of context, what are you going to conclude? You're going to think, oh hold on, so for women to get to heaven, they've got to give birth to a baby. What about salvation by grace? Yeah, I mean, if you take it out of context, you're going to come to a ludicrous um, understanding. So we need to put things in context. It's also good to understand the genre or type of writing you're looking at. Uh, You would know if you read a newspaper report, you read it differently to a poem. You know, poems have metaphors and similes and rhetorical devices, you know. News reports tend to be more factual, right? Same, there are different sorts of writing in the Bible. You've got to interpret it in accordance with the right genre. It's also helpful to know a bit about the context or the cultural context of the passage Uh, and particularly in those two readings which we had a bit earlier, I think it's really important to know a bit about the cultural context to get a better grasp on what they're saying and what they're not saying. And another thing which we need to do is particularly when there's uh, a teaching section of the Bible where it's telling us, you know, here's the way to think, here's how to live and not to live etc. We need to distinguish what I would call biblical principles from cultural applications of those biblical principles. Let me give you an example. I, I did a paper when I was at college on greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay? Now, I think that the underlying biblical principle there would be, or well, part of it would be, to love your neighbour as yourself. You know, we should show love to others. One of the cultural applications of that principle in the first century culture when it came to greetings to people might have been to greet one another with a holy kiss. But even though I think it's mentioned three or four times in the New Testament, we don't have to greet each other with a holy kiss. I don't have to turn up to church and greet Howard with a holy kiss and then Joe with a holy kiss and then Julie with a holy kiss. And, you know, that was a cultural application. Now, it's usually pretty clear to us, uh, if we know the Bible reasonably well, whether something's a universal principle or a cultural application, but not always. And in one of the passages which was just read to us, I think there's a... um, You know, different people have different views on whether something's a principle or an application and I'll I'll come to that um, a bit later. So, there's my second preliminary comment about biblical interpretation. Let's get on to our third point which is our main area, men, women and ministry. Now, if you've been in our series up until now, you will have seen that um, I think the Bible teaches that men and women are equal and men and women are different which many people would just think is common sense, uh, but I think that's what the Bible teaches as well. So, for example, Genesis 1 teaches about men and women being equal. It says we're all created in God's image, male and female. Genesis 2 highlights, uh, there's a bit of difference, though. There's a complementary relationship between men and women. It says that you know the woman was created as the helper for the man in that Genesis 2 passage. Now, when the word helper uh, is used, it doesn't in- imply superiority or inferiority in fact the word helper is used of God um, in in the book of Psalms it's just sort of you know there's this sort of you know complementary equal but different sort of relationship being described there this is also picked up uh, and seen in the New Testament teaching as well so we see that there's equality amongst Christians in the New Testament so Galatians 3.28 so there's neither you know Jew nor Gentile slave nor free male nor female you're all one in Christ Jesus There's the equality idea. But a few weeks ago, um, you would have heard a sermon on gender and marriage, and you would have heard, I I didn't give that sermon, but you would have heard that um, there's this idea of a complementary relationship uh, between a husband and wife, an equal but different sort of relationship. And so Ephesians 5, for example, talks about um, wives submit to your husbands, and the husband is the head of the wife. Wives are instructed to self-sacrificially love their wives, uh, I would say even to the point of being prepared to die for their wives. Now, um, I understand, and I'm not going to give the sermon on marriage again, but I understand uh, when it says male headship, is talking about self-sacrificial service of one's wife. I understand um, female submission to mean that a wife would support, seek to support her husband in his, his leadership of the family. Once again, no idea of superiority or inferiority implied, just, I guess, different complementary roles. What that looks like in practice will vary from culture to culture and will vary from marriage to marriage, but where it lived out lovingly, I think it's a very appealing scenario. Now, that said, I think it's very hard for me and probably for most of you to hear the words headship and submission without sort of going, Ugh. you know, it, it, it often has so many negative connotations uh, associated with it, such that we hear those words and we, a whole lot of negative thoughts come to mind. If that's not your problem, good luck to you, but it sort of is for me. Um, I wonder whether perhaps in place of headship and submission, this morning I might just use the words uh, leadership and support, which I think are slightly less um, connotatively problematic. So, uh, I want to suggest that today we're going to see this complementary order of male leadership and female support, not just expressed in a Christian marriage, but also in the context of Christian ministry. And again, if it's lived out properly and sensibly and lovingly, I think it should be a, a liberating and appealing way. Um, given that our, the God who created us gives us this teaching, if if I've understood the teaching properly and if we understand it properly, well, it should be uh, good for us and for everyone. So, a few quick comments on men, women and ministry in the New Testament. You will have noticed that Jesus um, counted amongst his followers and friends, men but also women. He taught Not just men but he also taught women. We also read in one place that he was actually financially supported by a number of women and his first post-resurrection experience was to men and women but the first person he appeared to was a woman. Early Church of Acts, we see the men and women are getting together to pray. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, God's Spirit is poured out on men and women. We look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and at the end of the book of Romans, he lists a whole lot of his friends and co-workers, and there's a whole lot of women listed there as well. I guess the take-home message is that Christianity in the first century was very inclusive uh, and involved women, which would have been, in the cultural context of the day, liberating and entirely countercultural, because other groups probably weren't doing that. Um, although A few of them would have, but not in good ways, like the Temple of Artemis, but that's another matter. Um, Okay, so there's a whole lot of context. Now, I want to actually get to the two passages which were just read to us today. Uh, Both uh, passages, in my view, are challenging in terms of interpretation and application. Both of them seem to relate to doing ministry in what we would today refer to as a church service. So something, you know, pretty much uh, like this. The first one which Joe read was 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 to 16 and on its first reading it appears as really quite a strange passage. Some of the terminology and some of the reasoning seems highly surprising and unusual. Now to properly unpack all of that passage would require a very long sermon. Uh, I just want to make one or two points from it. If you want to talk to me about things I didn't discuss chat to me later. But the main point I want to make is that when it comes to prayer and prophecy in a service uh, like this, both men and women were taught about doing it, but the way they were to go about their prayer and prophecy was slightly different. Women were supposed to have their heads covered, the men weren't. So we read in verses 4 and 5, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. Now, uh, prophecy here is not referring to sort of like the Old Testament sort of prophecy, but prophecy in the New Testament, I I think, sort of may relate to more like the application of God's word to a person's life or situation. So, it might be someone giving a testimony or it might be someone giving a short reflection, like Joe gave a reflection um, earlier in in the service. So, um, there's prophecy. Now, head coverings. Now, what on earth is going on there? Well, it's clearly a cultural thing. We're not exactly sure what the covering and uncovering was getting at but I've done some reading and here's a possible or probable explanation of what was going on. I've read uh, that in that period uh, the women's head covering referred to here might be a, a veil which was worn by married women. So if that was the appropriate cultural thing at the time. If you were to get up in church without you know your head covering on, it might be taken as asserting independence from one's husband's or disrespect for one's husband and so the idea is, well, you should wear your veil when you're up the front in church, you don't want to create, you know, discontent or dishonour anyone or make anyone feel bad or whatever like that. So, you know, for the sake of good order in church, women, you know, if you're married, whatever, wear your veil or head covering or whatever it was. What about the men, not covering their heads? Once again, we don't exactly know, but here's a possible explanation. I have read that men in the first century might cover their heads in a certain way when they were officiating in religious pagan cults. I've also read that men would sometimes cover their head if they were from um, the social elite of culture of the day. So it might be that if men were getting up and praying or prophesying with their head covered, it might have unhelpful associations with pagan rites of the day or it might be that they were big noting, big noting themselves and drawing attention to themselves. Once again, not entirely helpful for the, the Christian meeting. So, I guess the point here is both men and women are praying and prophesying, in the way I've described I- I- in church, but um, they want it, Paul wanted them to do it in a way which is going to be helpful and not distracting and not unhelpfully associated with things, so he gives that instruction. Men and women both do it, but do it in a slightly different way. I guess that's my point. Now, the difference uh, appears in the passage to me to relate also partially to this complementary, equal and different um, male-female order idea uh, because 1 Corinthians 11.3, which is just before those verses I read, uh, is, uh, Paul writes, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of, every, of Christ uh, is God. It's this idea of order, once again, not superiority, inferiority, but just, I guess, the way complementary it works together. So, gender or order impacted prophecy and prayer, but I also I wonder whether you noticed in that passage there was also mutual dependency uh, between men and women, where it says in verses 11 and 12 that a woman is not independent of man, nor is a man independent of woman. You know, there's this teamwork, working together, complementary order idea being expressed in, in the church meeting. Much more could be said about that passage, but that's the main thing I wanted to get out for today. Second passage, it was um, one which Jeff read, 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15, and it's attracted a lot of debate, Uh, probably will not come as no surprise to you. Once again, uh, some of the things it says appear quite strange on first reading, and it's uh, clearly a combination of biblical principle and cultural application, and for me to unpack it would require once again a full sermon, which I'm not going to give it, but let me make a few quick points. Hopefully, you've got the passage there. Um, Verse 8, men are exhorted to pray without anger or disputing. So, I think there's a biblical principle where men pray in church, pray but without anger or disputing. I mean, what good is that going to do? That's the biblical principle but when it says pray, lift up holy hands, the the fact that lifting up hands to pray, that's a cultural thing. The Bible describes lots of different postures for prayer. It doesn't really matter whether we're like that or like that or where we're kneeling or prostrate, you know, lots of ways to pray. The principle, pray without disputing, cultural application, you know, with your hands raised, do we have to have our hands raised today? No, different cultural context, we don't need to. So we've distinguished there and probably you did it with almost without thinking when you looked at the passage, universal principle, cultural application. Verses 9 and 10, women are, are, are exhorted how to adorn themselves and uh, the principle is that women should dress with uh, modesty, decency and propriety and engage in good deeds. Now, I don't think that doesn't say that women uh, shouldn't try to present themselves uh, nicely if they want to unless presenting themselves nicely is in some way inappropriate because it's you know immodest or something like that what the focus is on is that the best way to clothe yourself is with with good works now once again you know men should do good works as well but that's just the point which is being made here and you know that's the point there yeah good then we get to verses 11 and 12 which is the highly disputed section let me read it out a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. Now what you probably didn't notice was the highly counterculturally liberating thing there which presupposes that women are supposed to learn. In the first century people didn't bother to teach women very much but here it's assumed that women are part of the Christian community and learning so I just throw that in. But Um, The problem we have today is the idea of women learning in quietness and submission and the instruction not to teach or assume authority over a man. And verses 13 and 14, the following two, seem to suggest that in some way this is grounded in the created order, you know, the the complementary male-female thing. So it seems to me that order impacts teaching here in some way. But uh, the key question is, in those two verses, which parts are biblical principle and which parts are cultural application? Of the biblical principle now it seems to me that it uses the words male authority or, and female submission or what I would describe as male leadership and female support I think that's there that's a biblical principle okay so that's that complementary idea which we discussed earlier but what about the bit about being quiet which which doesn't mean, by the way, total silence because we know elsewhere that women were speaking in the church service. It just means, I guess, sort of, you know, humbly listening. Uh, What about the being quiet and not teaching? Is that a biblical principle or is it a cultural application of the underlying leadership support biblical principle? Now, if uh, not teaching and being quiet is a biblical principle, then women shouldn't, say, for example, preach in a church service such as this. And uh, this is a view which is argued for by an Australian Christian writer by the name of Claire Smith who wrote a book called God's Good Design Uh, and that's how she understands it. She thinks that it's a a biblical principle. She further says that uh, Paul is not saying that all women are to submit themselves to all men all the time, rather women are to be submissive in church where the teaching is happening and what is taught and those men who are teaching it. So it it will reply to a context such as this. Doesn't mean that if the, the male pastor after the service says to the woman come around to my place and make me a meal, doesn't mean she has to submit to that or anything like that. It's talking about the teaching scenario. Also, uh, I should add that all this teaching here about uh, Christian ministry, it's not doesn't apply outside the church family. So this doesn't apply in say the workplace. You know, you can have women. CEOs in the workplace, everyone would agree, or the sporting club. You could have a president of the PNC who's a woman, or, you know, whatever. It's talking about the Christian meeting. Anyway, so Claire Smith feels that it's inappropriate for women to preach uh, because of that being a universal uh, biblical principle. Now, however, if the, the, sil- the listening in, in quietness and not teaching is the cultural application appropriate to the time of the biblical principle of leadership and support, then there might be circumstances where it could be appropriate for women to preach in church. And this view is argued for by John Stott and you can read about that in his book, Issues Facing Christians Today. And so he says, I believe there are situations in which it's entirely proper for women to teach and to teach men, provided that in so doing, they are not usurping improper authority over them. Oh yeah, it's done in a way consistent with this leadership support sort of idea. Now, Smith and Stott are both agreeing about most things they both agree that there's this idea of complementarity that there's this idea of equal and different there's this maleness and the female order of leading a- and assisting what they differ on is the application to that particular situation um, so here we go now um, what about our church here at Anglican Church of Springwood Uh, it seems to me that the way uh, things are conducted here at church are consistent with a complementarian view of order, male, female, team ministry, etc., etc. So, um, the way it works out here is that we have men preaching, we have men and women leading services, we have men and women praying and sharing in church and doing Bible readings, Uh, there there seems to be a man overseeing each congregation, Men lead men's groups, women lead women's groups, men and women co-lead mixed groups and women often take the studies in those groups. We have men doing ministries with men, women doing ministries with women, men and women leading and teaching youth and children, uh, all of which uh, I think is quite consistent um, with a complementarian approach. Uh, so if you're comfortable with what happens here at church, you're comfortable with that that, that approach. Uh, in my view, uh, the main thing is to see a complementarian order given an expression to in the way we structure and do things here at church and I'm quite flexible about what that looks like in practice personally but I do think we want to have that sort of idea of order uh, seen in the way we do things. Now I talked to a couple of women from our church during the week about this very topic and this complementarian idea and the two I spoke with both said they were quite uh, comfortable with that uh, understanding of the Bible. Uh, one of them said to me that uh, she found it very easy to do ministry with men if they were kind and took the women's points of view into account obviously however if a male leader was domineering and in my personal opinion not hers domineering male leaders tend to be insecure in my view male leaders and if the male leader was domineering and non-consultative it made it very difficult for her Um, she said though that her experience at this church has been very positive but she's had some negative experiences in other Christian contexts elsewhere so there's that let me conclude Uh, I think we've seen in our series that God creates men and women equal but we're different uh, the way we relate to each other is in this complementary uh, uh, way and in the Christian family and in the Christian church family, there's this idea, I believe, of, of male uh, leadership and female support that we need to try and live out in an appropriate way. That if that's the way that God made us, that should be a liberating way of, of living, if I've understood the Bible properly. Uh, so I want to suggest today that a complementary church ministry should be liberating ministry. So let, let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, help us to think well and wisely about our team ministry and ministry here at church with men and women and adults and children even. Um, Lord, help us to seek to understand your word and live it out in a loving way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.